message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Today is a bit of a, a ministry dream come true for me. For years, I have often wondered what God would do in a church, in the lives of the people that make up a church, if everyone studied uh, the Bible from the beginning of it to the end of it and did it together. <laughs> I have for years wondered what that would be like. And uh, so today is an exciting day for me personally because it's the first step in a journey that may take us, may take us four years or more. Um, it's a big book. Uh, even as I speak, uh, both our children and our junior high, senior high students are studying the very passage of scripture that I'm going to preach on. And I hope um, this will provide some fodder for conversation among families. And uh, this will be our pattern uh, for the most part, week in and week out. Now, if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're coming back to the Bible after being away from it for a while, this is, you could not have picked a better Sunday to join us. Um, because by joining us in this journey together, you're going to get a perspective and a view of the Bible that maybe you've never had before. I don't know if you've been in a church that's preached from the beginning of it to the end of it before. Um, but, uh, but if you're new to it, if you're coming back to it after being away for a while, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a, a great time to, uh, to be a part of us. Before we jump in, I want to pray. And uh, let's commit this journey to the Lord and God. Um, we we want to approach your word with great expectations because you have demonstrated it accomplishes much. And so I pray, Lord, that, that we would be given a sense of um, wonder and excitement, anticipation over how you're going to work in us and through us as we look at a word that you've given to us in your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's begin Genesis 1. You don't have to search too hard. It's the first book in the Bible. We're going to look at the first 25 verses of the first chapter. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. 
God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in according to their own kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. Let, and let them be, light, be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and the seas and let the birds increase in the earth. And it was evening and it was morning the fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. How a story begins is incredibly important for the rest of the story. How a story begins tells you a lot about what the main point of the story is. Uh, the classic musical, which has become a favorite of my kids, Mary Poppins, uh, begins by portraying the father as a successful businessman uh, who runs his home with this militant discipline, but is relationally and emotionally distant from his kids. This is a tension that's established early in the story and isn't resolved until the end. How the story begins helps us understand the purpose for each subplot within the story. How a story begins is critical to figuring out the main point of the story. So it is with the Bible. Genesis 1 is all about God. Derek Kidner, in his little commentary on the book, says this, it is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. For this word dominates the whole chapter, catches the eye at every point of the passage. It is used some 35 times in as many verses of the story. The passage, indeed the book, is about him first of all. To read it with any other primary interest is to misread it. How a story begins says a lot about how to interact with the rest of it. Genesis begins with God. And so let's dive into this today and see what this chapter has to say 
about God. We're gonna look at these four things. We're gonna look at what this, te- this text says about God's being, God's creation, God's word, and God's modus operandi. God's being, God's creation, God's word, God's modus operandi. First, God's being. The first four words hit the reader like a Mack truck. In the beginning, God. Now in the ensuing verses, we're not given any sort of backstory to God. Oftentimes, stories open up by creating some sort of characterization of of the main characters involved in the story. In Star Wars 4, for example, we're introduced to Luke Skywalker. But our first look at him isn't in the context of his primary role as hero of the rebel forces. No, we're given his backstory. Luke is a farm boy. He's being raised by his aunt and uncle. The backstory makes him a bit mysterious, but it also creates as a contrast to highlight his meteoric rise to savior of the civilization. In Genesis 1, there's no backstory. God bursts onto the scene and immediately begins fulfilling one of his heroic roles of being the creator of the cosmos. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God was already there before any clock started ticking. There was God. Before any sands slipped through the hourglass, there was God. A million years, a billion years, a trillion years before the universe, there was God. That is an insanely difficult truth to wrap our minds around. And frankly, it's not an exercise we like to do very much because the immeasurable is intimidating. One of my favorite movies as a teenager is the movie Hoosiers. Tells a story of this uh, small town rural basketball team from Hickory, Indiana. They find greatness through the leadership of their coach, Norman Dale, played by the great Gene Hackman. Having reached the state finals in 1951, Coach Dale's small town farm boy team gets their first look at where the championship game will be played. It is a giant gymnasium, perhaps 10 times the size of the rural gyms they played all their games in that season. And when they walk into the gym the first time, the the camera focuses on their eyes. You can just see them widen. These boys have never seen anything like this before. Coach Dale pulls out a tape measure. He asks one of the boys to measure the distance from the free throw line to the backboard. 15 feet. He then asks one of the boys to measure the distance between the rim and the floor. 10 feet. And then Coach Dale says this. He says, I think you'll find it's the exact same measurements as our gym back in Hickory. The scene is brilliant because it illustrates something we all know to be true. 
being able to measure something, being able to quantify something is reassuring. It gives us a level of comfort, even control. But in the first four words of the Bible, we're introduced to a character who is immeasurable. The scriptures describe elsewhere God this way. Job 36, behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. We don't know how long he's been around. There's no way to measure it. Psalm 145, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Stephen Sharnock put it this way. He said, what God is, he is infinitely so. Just stop there for a minute. Whatever God is, whatever he is, he's infinitely so. Conceive of him as excellent without any imperfection, a spirit without parts, great without quantity, perfect without quality, everywhere without place, powerful without members, understanding without ignorance, wise without reasoning, light without darkness, infinitely more excelling the beauty of all creatures. Now look what he says. And when you have risen to the highest, conceive him yet infinitely above all you can conceive. And acknowledge the infirmity of your own minds and whatsoever conception comes into your minds, say, this is not God. God is more than this. Mind blown. I once read of a pastor who was doing premarital counseling with a couple in their 20s. And uh, this is their first session. They're gathered in his office, and he looks at them across the table, and he says to them, once there was only God. And then he said, I want you to take the next 30 minutes to ponder the implications of that for your life and your marriage together. And he walked out of the room. Once there was only God. Take 30 minutes this week and ponder the implications of that for your life. Once there was only God. Second, what does this say about God's creation? What does this say about God's creation? God's first action in the Bible is to create. Now, interestingly enough, this word create is the Hebrew word bara. Bara is never used of anyone except God. Only God creates. Human beings fashion or form, but never in the Bible are human beings said to bara. Never are human beings said to create like God does in Genesis 1, which of course leads naturally to a question, what is different about what God's doing here than, than what human beings do? I think what we're meant to see here is that God creates ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. 
Human beings fashion out of pre-existing material, but we don't create something from nothing. Only God does that. The 17th century uh, mathematician and philosopher Sir Isaac Newton had a mechanical replica of our solar system made in miniature. Uh, at its center was a large golden ball representing the sun and revolving around it were smaller spheres and they were attached at the ends with rods of varying lengths. And uh, they represent the various planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, so on. And they were all geared together by, by cogs and belts to make them move around the sun in perfect harmony. One day as Newton was studying this model in motion, a non-Christian friend of his stopped by for a visit. Marveling at the device and watching as the scientist made these heavenly bodies move in their orbits, the man exclaimed, my Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Sir Isaac replied, nobody. Nobody? His friend asked, that's right. I said nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together. And wonder of wonders, by chance they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. His friend undoubtedly got the point. These days of creation are wonderfully ordered. They break down into two sets of three days. During the first three days, God is forming the universe. During the last three days, he's filling the universe. The succinct way to look at how God creates. Forming and then filling. And each of the six days possesses symmetry with another. So day one corresponds to day four, day two corresponds to day five, day three corresponds to day six. There's symmetry. Day one, light is created. On its corresponding day, God creates sun, moon, stars. On day two, God creates the sky and the waters of the earth. On day five, he creates birds and fish. On day three, creates land and plants. On day six, he creates animals and man. Wonderful symmetry. Creation occurs in opposite but complementary pairs. Light and darkness are coupled together. Heavens and the earth are coupled together. The earth and the sea are coupled together. Opposite but complementary is a design principle that God implanted in creation. And that's going to become important for us when we look at the crown jewel of his creation next week, male and female. And that has far-reaching implications for how we biblically process modern-day topics such as same-sex relationships. That's for another time. Now, when you hold an object in your hands, the more you know about the history of that object, the, the careful craftsmanship that went into making that object, the more impressed you are with it. For example, I wonder, has anybody held or played a Stradivarius violin in this room? I would love to talk to you about your experience of that if you have. Okay. The Stradivarius, how many of you have heard of Stradivarius violins? Okay, all right. Stradivarius violins, one of the violins, violas, cellos, other string instruments built by members of the Italian Stradivari family during the 17th and 18th centuries. And according to their reputation, the quality of their sound has defied attempts to explain or equal it. 
when you hold it in your hands and you play a Stradivarius violin, knowing its history and craftsmanship, you're impressed to the core with it. It's an experience you'll never forget. Knowing something about the craftsmanship of it, the history of it, <laughs> makes the experience of it that much better. The same is true in creation. When you know something about the history and craftsmanship of the universe, it makes your engagement with it an experience you'll never forget. So let's take some time to ponder the enormity and complexity of the universe. Think about the size of our universe. If our favorite modern day commercial airliner could take us from the earth to the earth's moon, it would take us three weeks to get there. That's one way. One way trip, three weeks, flying Delta to the moon. Three weeks. If we could take our favorite commercial airliner to Mars, when it's closest to the earth, it would take seven years, nine months to get there. Do the same with the sun. It'll take you 21 years to get there. Now, if our favorite commercial airliner could travel from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, it would take 137 million years. And we now know the Milky Way is but one of billions of galaxies in the observable universe. And we haven't found the end of it yet. How small is the earth? How small are you? Now, when you think about that, let's pause. With that thought in mind, how small are you in the universe? And let's read Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Whether you've been around the church, Christianity, the Bible a long time, or this is your first time, let these words wash over you. Even though you're a speck of dust in the universe, God knows you. He thinks about you. He's mindful of you. And he loves you. For a God to create a universe we have yet to fully explore or even know about, for a God like that to care for you means something. It means something. These musings on the enormity of the universe are matched equally by the complexity of the universe. Did you know that a hummingbird can travel up to 1,500 miles in migration and return to the same tree? I can't find Sendix without Google Maps. <laughs> Did you know ants don't have lungs? 
Instead, they breathe in oxygen through spiracles, which are a series of holes located around the sides of their bodies. And, and these spiracles are connected through a network of tubes, which help distribute oxygen to almost every cell in their body. Some of you don't really care right now. They just know that's a pest to you. Before any ant came to be, the blueprint for its minute and complex design existed in the mind of God. The enormity, the complexity of the created cosmos has its origins in God. Everything exists by God's design for his set purposes. So maybe the first and most appropriate question for us to ask in response to that is, God, what do you want me to do with this? Whatever this is, including the life you've given me. God, what do you want? Third, God's word. What does this say about God's word? We look at what this says about God's being and part, God's creation, what about God's word? One of the ways in which the Bible places emphasis on certain ideas or concepts is through repetition. And one of the bits in Genesis 1 whose repetition is unmistakable is the phrase, and God said, and God said, over and over and over again, God, the ultimate reality is a talking God. And this is significant for how we understand everything in this book and even the book itself. Now we know that words have power. Utter something harsh and critical to someone or about someone and watch the reaction, right? Speak a tender word of praise and encouragement to your children and watch them soar with confidence and security. Words have power, but why? I would proffer a reason here. Words have power not because there is power within words themselves. Words have power because God gave them that power the moment he chose to use words to speak into existence this massive universe. Think about the, all the different ways God could have created. Think about it. Could have just thought the thought. No explanation, there it is. The moment God chose to use words to create everything out of nothing, he gave words a power and dignity that's meant to be stewarded wisely. Speech is powerful because God chose to give speech power by using it as the medium through which the cosmos came to be. Now, there's something unique about God's speech that ours does not have. God spoke and things happened. Our speech is not that powerful. You can't just speak and have something happen. Right, husbands? No. Our words require an intermediary in order to be effective. Try this sometime. Walk into a dark room. Say, let there be light. Well, I'll tell you, there's only one way light's going to appear in that room. You or somebody has to flip a switch, or you have to have programmed Alexa to do that, or you've got Doc Brown's flux capacitor voice recognition thing going on in your home. That's the only way light appears. We need an intermediary. God does not. 
God can go from speech to the effect of the speech without needing an intermediary. That is powerful. This book <laughs> that we're beginning to study from front to back is filled with the speech of God. It's filled with it. The words of God. Think about this with me. If the words of God can bring about the universe whose dimensions we don't know, what do you think God's words are capable of accomplishing in your life? In Genesis 1, nothing happens until God speaks. This is why my heart breaks when I hear stories of people who have little interest in engaging with the Bible. If that's you, let me just tell you the truth here. If you have little interest in engaging with the Bible, you are epically missing out on what could be some of the most extraordinary moments a human being can have in this life. Don't underestimate the power of God's speech. Fight for time to get into the book. Fight for time. Even if it's 10 minutes a day, fight for time. And don't be surprised by what God does with it. Remember, one of the things that Genesis 1 is showing us is that when God speaks, big things happen. When God speaks, big things happen. Fourth and finally, let's look at God's modus operandi. Modus operandi is a Latin phrase, basically meaning the typical way of doing something. You might be someone who struggles to get anywhere on time. Your modus operandi or your MO is to be late. You might be someone who's incredibly gifted with attention to detail. You know, that's your typical way of doing things. That's your modus operandi. My modus operandi is to, with gusto, cheer for all Minnesota sports teams especially the Minnesota Vikings. So Packer Nation, I have just one thing to say to you. Game on. Some of you are thinking, if he's such a big Viking fan, why is he wearing a green shirt? I clearly didn't think that one all the way through. Let me show you Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now literally, the text says the cosmos was waste and void. Literally, it's waste and void. It was dark without form. Now compare that with what you have at the end. At the end of verse 25, you've got galaxies and solar systems and continents and oceans and seas and plants and fruits and vegetation, birds, fish, animals, and all of it's declared to be good. Why did God create the way he did? He could have in a single day made everything to be complete and good. Why does God create by moving from formlessness to something ordered, from waste to something good? He is setting for us his modus operandi. God is setting for us his pattern of expectation. This is his typical way of working. He takes what is chaotic and he brings order to it. He takes what looks like waste and fashions something beautiful from it. This is the kind of God he is. 
And this is good news for us. Let me show you one way this is good news. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, there's Genesis 1, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There's a lot going on there. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Paul's reference to the God of this age is a reference to Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel. So let me ask a basic question. Do you know what I mean by the gospel? Do you know what is meant by the gospel? Are you interested in the gospel? Do you find it attractive? Do you want to search it out? If not, the apostle Paul would say, the God of this age, Satan, has blinded your mind so you cannot see the light of the gospel. You're living in a Genesis 1-2 state. Formless, empty. Paul says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Listen, if you don't know what the gospel is, you're not interested in the gospel, you don't have an appetite for the gospel, you don't want to search out the gospel, here's what needs to happen. God has to make a pronouncement in your life. He has to speak into your life and say, let there be light. Just like what happened with Paul. He needs to show you why the gospel is such a marvelous reality. Why is the gospel such a marvelous reality? <laughs> Very briefly, the gospel is a marvelous reality. Here's the gospel. You want to know what it is? You're not sure what it is? Here it is. The gospel is Jesus lived the perfect life you could never live. And he died the death you would never want to die because you failed to live the life you should have lived. And why did he do this? Numerous reasons. One is he loves you. Nobody can make that light shine in you. God has to do that. Ask him to. Ask him to make that pronouncement of let there be light in your life. The rest of us, I'm assuming that at some point in the past, God made this pronouncement in your life. At one time, the God of this age had blinded your mind to the light of the gospel. But God has made his light to shine in you. I want to encourage you then with God's modus operandi in Genesis 1. You might be living in a state of chaos and waste right now as you look at your life. Of formlessness and emptiness. Maybe the, the chaos and waste is physical. You've been ravaged by some ailment or injury. Maybe it's mental. Your mind isn't what it used to be. Numerous possibilities. You look at your life, you see formlessness and you see emptiness. The kind of God portrayed in Genesis 1 is what you have to cling to. God's MO is to take that which is waste and void and fashion it into something ordered and beautiful. God's MO may not be to just snap his fingers and make everything be beautiful in, in, the, in the blink of an eye. That's not how he puts his kingdom together in Genesis 1. He takes his time. He moves methodically. Here's what God's encouraging us with this creation account. Slow down and watch him work. He moves methodically. 
He puts things together slowly. It doesn't all happen by downloading an app. He is at work. He's moving from formlessness to something ordered, from waste to something beautiful. But slow down and look for it. He's not just about the final destination. He wants to demonstrate the kind of God he is through the incremental steps he takes in getting there. Let's pray. God, before anything else was, you were there. Your ultimate reality, your perfection, you have no needs. You're greater than our minds can conceive of. And in your perfection, God, sometimes you create by, by taking that which is without form and ordering it. You take that which is waste and, and you make it beautiful. And we can find traces of your MO all over our lives. And so I pray, God, that what, whatever we're facing today that causes us to wonder where the order and beauty is, that we would remember the kind of God you are. Not everything is resolved with the flip of a switch. You work methodically, but you work faithfully. Encourage us this morning with the kind of God you are, and we're going to remind ourselves of the kind of God you are as we close with this song. We pray, Lord, that our hearts will be encouraged primarily because we see now more of who you are. We ask this to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.